Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this... It's the Sunday 7. Hey there, in today's episode we talk strawberry supermoons, we look at 230 years of mapping, we hear from a frog whisperer and discover when the stars first started to shine. But first, it was on this day in 1894, Carl Benz received the first patent for a gasoline-driven engine, revolutionising travel and opening up a world of opportunity and ultimately plenty of pollution. Now, when I was a kid and we headed off on summer holidays, there was always a ritual with the map. It would have to be unfolded on the kitchen table and various routes assessed and marked. Then, once we were in the car, it was a complicated piece of live origami to follow that route. Nowadays, of course, we just pop it onto Google Maps and follow the turns. Kids don't know they're bloody born. This year marks 230 years of Ordnance Survey Mapping, and John Kimmins is Managing Director of Ordnance Survey Mapping Services. So, John, how did Ordnance Survey first get started? Well, before 1791, there were ad hoc pieces of survey going on around the country, and a chap called William Roy really made a strong case for consolidating that and actually making it more of a, an initiative particularly making the case for it to be useful to survey the best places to put gun emplacements uh, to repel potential French Napoleonic invasion of the country. That creation was marked by the purchasing of a very high sophisticated instrument called the Ramsden Theodolite, and that's officially known as the official start of Ordnance Survey. Okay, so compared to the ancient map of gun emplacements in 1791, how do modern maps compare today? Well, the traditional maps were very labour-intensive, were very detailed and accurate, actually, but were effectively just a two-dimensional drawing and therefore needed to be poured over in a paper format. But the digital information is the most important and it's used right the way across the country uh, by government, uh, by business and indeed by consumers through the Consumer OS Maps app to support them when they go walking. From the moment you wake up in the morning, right the way throughout the day, you're touching Ordnance Survey at least 42 times. The water that comes out of your tap, the mobile phone signal that you use, uh, deliveries that you receive, all use Ordnance Survey data uh, to help underpin those services. But as the world moves towards electric and self-driving vehicles, where does that leave mapping and the Ordnance Survey? And certainly we in Ordnance Survey uh, anticipate that our offerings and the national mapping service we provide will need to change in order to meet the needs of tomorrow. To actually provide a grounding uh, to enable autonomous vehicles that are driving themselves to actually position themselves in the actual, in, in the real world. Perhaps even uh, a situation where we have a sort of a, th- a 3D model of the world uh, that enables us to understand that not only are there roads uh, that cars drive on, but there are actual pathways in the sky that drone deliveries are happening as well. This week saw another supermoon. We had a pink one back in April, and this one was known as the Strawberry Supermoon. Hmm. 
It's time to catch up with friend of the show, Patricia Skelton, who's an astronomy education officer at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. So let's talk supermoon, shall we? So a supermoon occurs when the moon is in its full moon phase and the moon is at its closest to the Earth. Because both of these conditions need to be met for a supermoon to occur, this explains why we don't have a supermoon every month. The June supermoon was, in fact, the last supermoon of 2021. So if you missed out on seeing it, you will have to wait until June 2022 for the next supermoon to occur. With regards to the names given to supermoons, they aren't chosen at random. The supermoon name depends on the name of the full moon for that month. Many of the moon's nicknames have come to us from Native American culture, and they named the June full moon the Strawberry Full Moon because it coincided with the ripening of berries and harvesting of strawberries. It seems like the moon's sort of come back into fashion. There are plans to land more people on it soon, right? NASA announced that the Artemis program will finally return humans to the moon, and they're aiming to do that in 2024. Now, the last humans to explore the moon were the Apollo 17 astronauts, and that was back in December 1972. And since then, we've relied solely on spacecrafts to do exploration of the moon. The purpose of the Artemis program is to allow astronauts to explore more of the moon than ever before. And new technologies and systems will allow those astronauts to achieve that goal. Importantly, the lessons that are going to be learned from a return to the moon will help to shape future manned exploration of Mars. So returning to the moon is essential if we want to send astronauts out to Mars one day. I'm a shambles. I've missed the last two. What else should I be keeping an eye on the sky for? There are meteor showers to look forward to later this year, especially the Perseids meteor shower, which peaks around the 12th of August. It's considered one of the best showers to observe because it has a rate of around 150 meters per hour. So fingers crossed for good weather and clear skies on the 12th of August. And make sure to put a reminder on your phone so that you don't miss one of the spectacular meteor showers of the year. Question for you, how long do you think you're going to live for? You've made it through a once in a century pandemic and if you don't mind me saying so, you look in pretty good shape. Apart from the Covid stone and medical science is advancing all the time. Hello, my name is Fernando Colchero and I am an associate professor in statistics at the Department of Mathematics and Computer Science and at the Interdisciplinary Centre for Population Dynamics at the University of Southern Denmark. A new study into life expectancy suggests that no matter how quickly science advances, human death is inevitable. The central focus of our study was to explore the relationship between life expectancy, which is essentially the average age at which individuals die in a population, and lifespan equality, which tells us how concentrated deaths are at older ages in that same population. What we found in a previous study was that among humans, these two variables are very strongly related. They have a positive relationship. So as life expectancy increases, so does lifespan equality. So this doesn't imply that we cannot reach immortality because even if we make our aging rates to be zero, we will still die eventually. There's a cheery Sunday morning view for you, but maybe immortality isn't really all it's cracked up to be, unless you're Thor or Loki, of course. So 
how long can we reasonably expect to live? So quoting Freddie Mercury, who wants to live forever, I agree with that. Maybe not. If you look at, uh, at the maximum ages that humans have reached, we're not that far away from 150. So Jean Calment died at the age of 122. And if you look at the list, you can actually search it in Wikipedia. You can find how many people are within this category of the super centenarian. So people that have survived beyond the one, 100 years of age and, and further along. And, and, and the closest person has also reached 119 years of age. So it is likely that we might reach 150, 200. I cannot really answer that question. Everything will depend on our medical progress. Now, if you're a regular listener to the Sunday 7, you'll know that we love all things space. And I would imagine there's a healthy percentage of you have got your own telescope. You know the one pointing out of your bedroom window, probably cost about 100 quid off eBay. And when you look through it, you can't really tell whether you're looking at the moon, Jupiter, or just your neighbour's bathroom. Uh, yes, I'm talking to you, sir. They know you're doing it. Please stop. This is a telescope so powerful that when it launches later this year, it's going to be able to see the first galaxies that appeared just after what's known as the Cosmic Dawn. What's the cosmic dawn, I hear you ask? Well, it's a period of time that happened 350 million years after the Big Bang. But until that telescope's launch, at the moment, scientists are having to try and age galaxies using picture quality that looks like a selfie from a Sony Ericsson in 2003. And if you're thinking to yourself, sounds like Jamie's reading that off a press release, you'd be absolutely right. Why don't we speak to someone who knows exactly what they're talking about? Speaking to the Sunday 7 across the channel right now is Dr Nicholas Laporte from the Kavli Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. Nicholas, how do you get from a few pixels on a screen to accurately getting an age for some particles of light in distant galaxies? Well, that, that's a very hard work, right? So we combine data coming from many telescopes, so from the Hubble Space Telescope to identify these subjects. And once we have the coordinate of these subjects, we can use a ground-based telescope to go precisely at the position of this galaxy. And then we integrate it for seven, eight, and even 10 hours with an eight-meter-class telescope to get uh, some signal from, from those galaxies. And after the Big Bang, it was another nearly 350 million years before the universe first saw starlight. What was happening in the, in the interim? Well, you mean just before Cosmic Dawn? Yeah. So the Dark Ages is a period where you have nothing in the universe. You have no light, you have no stars, uh, you have some matter, and you start to form stars. But Cosmic Dawn is exactly the period where you start to emit the light of, um, emit by the star in the galaxies. And what are we going to learn and benefit from these from these new pictures? Well, as you know, uh, in astrophysics, we always combine um, models and observations. And these observations are quite very useful for people working on models because they will have a precise idea of when, in the history of the universe, uh, the light, the first light has been emitted. So that's important for people working on, on models and doing some theory. Time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's pretty scary how we've become dependent on broadband, isn't it? It sort of slipped into the basic utilities category like water and electricity. And while many of us didn't have much of a choice about working from home during the pandemic, a new survey suggests that we're not too keen to rush back to the office now either. Hi there, this is Adam McHale, Vice President for Cisco Service Provider in Europe, Middle East and Africa. Cisco? No, not that one. Cisco Systems has just completed its first ever broadband index, asking workers in the UK and Europe about their views on the internet, broadband access and the future of working from home. Firstly, how important is it? Well, in the report, 78% of the responders, and and you have to bear in mind, this was based on a survey of 13,500 people across six countries, said that it was a necessity and often fundamental to their livelihoods. And it was interesting, speed but reliability was always rated very high as well. If you're going to have this as part of your job, if you're going to be joining critical meetings, you need to make sure that it's going to be there when you need it. And did the pandemic cause changes in patterns of data usage? We used to see a big surge in traffic at the end of the day, between 6 and 8 o'clock, when everybody hopefully would get home from work. And what was interesting is in the pandemic, we saw that traffic then all day, as people were educating from home, as people were working from home, consuming online entertainment, you name it, that traffic was going on all day. The other interesting thing is the difference between the upload and the download. Typically it's the download traffic. If you're streaming a video on Netflix or Amazon Prime, it's download. But on video conferencing, the traffic is both ways. So those networks, again, need to cope with a completely different type of traffic usage. Social media is an entertaining, if slightly insane place at times, but there are definitely dark corners with trolls living there. My name is Steve Rathjay. I am a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, where I study as a Gates Cambridge scholar. Cambridge University studied 2.7 million tweets and Facebook posts over the last five years to see what made a post go viral. What we found was the best predictor of virality out of all the predictors we measured Social media posts about the opposing party were twice as likely to be shared or retweeted than posts about one's own party. We find that these results are pretty uh, depressing and alarming. Essentially, the study shows that negativity gets a better response and then the algorithm kicks in, promoting that popular content to the top of our feeds. Algorithms overwhelmingly seem to be about showing posts at the top of your social media feed that you are more likely to like and share and interact with. This is problematic because the content that really engages you is hateful toward the other side. As to the counter argument that social media companies are just giving us what we want, this probably isn't true. Uh, Polarizing content might be what we want to click on in the short term, but it's unlikely to be what we really like in the long term. Does this mean we're all doomed and the internet will never ever be free of these blooming trolls? So if we were just to look at trends, um, I might project that polarization is likely to get worse, or we can certainly expect that that's a reasonable possibility, unless we do something about it. And I think social media companies really have a responsibility. However, I think it's unlikely that social media companies are going to do that. 
when Facebook has tried to change the algorithm to reduce the amount of harmful content in its social media feeds. This decreased the number of times people opened the app, and then Facebook failed to implement these changes that were supposed to lessen polarization. Uh, great. I guess Steve England flagged Brexit forever. 1898-1921 is here to stay. Settle in. No, you haven't stumbled onto an audio recording of a night out in Yorkshire. It's not all ear, all see, all say, out. What you're actually hearing is Michael Mahoney, and he's a frog whisperer. I always get a thrill when you call back, and sometimes we forget to work because, you know, just like to talk to the frogs for a while, and it's sort of good fun. And Oh, he doesn't like it. He's giving us a bit of his warning call. Michael's a biology professor and conservationist at the University of Newcastle in Australia, and he spends hours in the wilderness calling out for frogs and hoping to get a response back. Australia's got about 240 different frog species, but about 30% of them are at risk from extinction. At heart, we are about saving animals in nature, but we also recognise when things become really bad, we have to take an insurance policy and the insurance policy is to store their genome for the future. OK, I'll give that a shot then. Thanks, Michael. Uh, re, re, you jammy frog. Come here. Come here. Come to Daddy. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.